I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, today, today we're doing some uh, inside baseball, if you know the term. Um, Christians debating amongst themselves about some of the doctrines about salvation, uh, soteriology, we call it. Um, this is kind of a next-level discussion about Calvinism. But before I do anything else, I recorded a quick intro that I would like to share with you uh, today, just for today's show. in honor of James White. Um, so this is actually a response to, well, sort of a response to uh, Dr. White's video where he responded to me. He critiqued my video on limited atonement, but I don't just want to do like a response to a response because I feel like we just get so far away from the actual subject matter that it stops helping people. And the whole goal here is to help people and assist people and add something fruitful to the conversation. So let me say, I'm taking advantage of his video as an opportunity to respond to what are actually some common Calvinist objections that frequently non-Calvinists have never heard and certainly haven't responded to. So I'm going to try to offer some thoughtful responses to these Calvinist objections. I've put a, an actual list of the things I'll respond to in the description, in the video description, and you guys can check those out. I don't know if I'll have time for the Q&A today. I'll announce later if I'll be taking questions. And when I announce it, then I'll take questions. Uh, until then, don't worry about adding your questions into the chat because there's a good chance we won't have time for that because there's a ton of stuff we're covering today. So this is not just a response. It's a chance to address some Calvinist objections to the idea that Jesus died for everyone. That's the topic, right? Did Jesus die for everyone? Uh, the Calvinist who affirms limited atonement says no, not really. Um, and those who don't affirm that would say, yes, uh, he did die for everyone. Um, so I've put James White's video in the description. And before I get into it, I, I just want to say James White, uh, me and him actually got together and had lunch the other day, uh, a few weeks ago, and we're best friends forever. And that's just, those are the facts. And we, we had such a good time together that we went on a hike. And after that, I, I decided, you know, to take him to Disneyland. He was just begging me to go to Disneyland. So we went to Disneyland together. I'm showing photos for those who are on the podcast of, of these things, uh, badly photoshopped fake photos. And then we went skydiving just to kind of end up the day together. There's us, jumped out of a plane, just skydiving together in the same pose as that first photo. Um, so anyways, me and, uh, me and James White actually did meet and we had a really friendly discussion and conversation. We're not best friends, but, uh, but my point here is this, we need to treat this topic as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if, if you find that the moment Calvinism or not being a Calvinist comes up, you're divisive with people. That's a spiritual issue that you need to address in your relationship with God, um, I can talk about this with my brothers and sisters and walk away totally disagreeing with no harm to our fellowship on this topic. That, that's my opinion, and I do, I do live that out, and I hope that we can try to live that out. So um, here's another disclaimer before I get into the long video that will be today, and that is I could be wrong. Uh, I could be wrong on these topics, and I'm open to the idea that I could be wrong, and, I, and perhaps one day I'll, I'll make future content saying I've changed my mind on something. I'm, I'm open to this idea. I am convinced, though, and while I say I could be wrong, I am convinced, and it's not just like a completely uninformed convinced. I try to hear the arguments from both sides, and I am convinced that biblically this is really clear, 
And so I want to present what I think is a very clear biblical case for the fact that Jesus died for everybody. Um, so uh, James White's video, uh, it was not really so much just a response to me. Um, it, it wasn't exactly. He didn't actually deal with most of the content in my video. He brought up something he thought I didn't address and made that the focus of most of the video. Um, but I'm going to deal with that issue called Trinitarian Harmony and the Atonement. And um, he also addressed a bunch of stuff that I, that I never taught and don't teach that stuff like N.T. Wright or other people he's encountered have taught. So it, it wasn't so much, even though the title says it, it wasn't really about me that much. But I'll use that as a launch pad to talk about these different issues. And so, um, so here we go. Thanks for joining me. Uh, my name is Mike Winger. This is the Tuesday live stream every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Um, I do this on YouTube, and it also goes out to podcast, and it goes up on, uh, later on, you know, God willing, if we're able to uh, get it up on the Facebook page and all that stuff too. Um, so let me lay out for you. Here's the overview. Several Calvinist objections. Here they are. I'm going to give you at least five, maybe, maybe six. Calvinist objections to limited atonement. Let me give you all the objections right now. Then I'm going to go back over them one at a time and slowly unpack those issues. Uh, some will take longer than others, but uh, that's the plan for today. So the first objection is called Trinitarian Harmony in the Atonement. And if I could summarize what this is, it's the idea that the Father elects, and I'm going to speak, say it like I'm a Calvinist here, the Father elects only certain people to be saved, and then he sends the Son to save just those people. Then the Holy Spirit only regenerates those same people. So there's this cohesion in, in the plan and the, in the working together of the persons of the Trinity. Now, if, if you're to say the Son tries to save all people when the Father has only chosen certain ones for salvation, then you create a conflict in the Trinity where the Son's trying to do something against the plan of the Father. That is, that is the basic idea of Trinitarian harmony in, in the Atonement. It's that if Jesus died for all people, it threatens our theology of who God is. Okay, so that's a pretty big objection. We'll come to answering it later. The second objection is that it's called the failure of the son objection. It's the idea that if Jesus died for people, for all people, then he died for people who will end up in hell, many of them. So therefore, Jesus failed at his task. He's a failing savior. Let's all deal with that objection. Uh, a third challenge would be the intercession issue. And this is the idea that Jesus intercedes for whoever he died for. You know, he ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews speaks about this a lot. He's living to intercede for who? For the people he died for. And whoever he intercedes for is going to be saved. Yet not everyone is saved. Therefore, he does not intercede for everyone because they would all go to heaven. Right? So, therefore, if he didn't, doesn't intercede for everyone, then he didn't die for everyone because there's a parallel between who he dies for and who he intercedes for. Um, so, therefore, Jesus didn't die for everyone. That's the intercession uh, argument. Then there's a group of false dilemmas, uh, a lot, several of them. I was going to do more, but I decided to narrow it down to this one from John Owen, a uh, famous, famous dilemma or trilemma, you might call. And I'll just read to you this dilemma. Um, John Owen, and I'll put it up on the screen. I'll put it up again later. Sometimes it helps to hear things twice because these are weird ideas if you've never heard them before. If you're not a Calvinist, you're like, wait, what, 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 what? I mean, this is a lot of stuff that just seems uh, like it's coming out of nowhere. Um, and so... It's good to hear it more than once. Um, so this is, the, this is John Owen's dilemma or trilemma. He says, I may add this dilemma to our universalists. God imposed his wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either all the sins of all men, that's the first option on your screen, or all the sins of some men, the second option, or some of the sins of all men. 
if the last, if it's some of the sins of all men, then have all men some sins to answer for, and so shall no man be saved. Now, I, I didn't even tell you this. I'm actually quoting John Owen from his book, uh, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Um, this is the famous Calvinist work. And as I read on, he says, if the second option, if you pick the second option, that is, that is it which we affirm, that the Calvinists, that Christ died for all of the sins of some men, um, that uh, Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the world. If the first, if you pick the first option, why are not all freed from the punishment of their sins? You will say because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief is a sin, is it not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it or not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he, di if he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Let them choose which part they will. So this is like a dilemma where you're like, if Jesus died for all the sins of all men, then it's universalism. Everyone's going to be saved. If you deny universalism, you have to say he, did, he basically died for all the sins of some men because unbelief is going to be included in this. I'll answer this later. And then uh, number five, fifth thing I'll deal with, um, is the double jeopardy issue. Um, this is the idea that, that if I say Jesus died for everyone, and yet people still suffer for their sins, then I'm saying that there's double jeopardy or double payment for their sins. Let me read to you a summary of this argument. It goes like this. If Jesus died for all people, then the sins of all people have been paid for. There is no wrath left for them. Therefore, to punish sin would be to punish it twice, once in Christ and again upon the death of the unbeliever. So there's someone, you know, suffering in the future in hell for a sin Jesus paid for. So it's being paid for at the cross and in hell? Wait, that doesn't make sense. So that's the double jeopardy objection. The conclusion is then Jesus didn't die for everybody. Now, I don't agree with any of these, but those are the objections. Um, and then finally, uh, at the end, after this long video, I will get to the part where I'm just going to say there are clear, clear teachings in the scripture that refute the doctrine or the idea that Jesus died for only a certain group of people and not for all people. And uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 was, was a major verse I used in my previous video. James White actually responded directly to this verse, and I'm going to continue the conversation. I think my position was misrepresented there, and I want to bring clarity to that issue. I don't think it was done on purpose or maliciously, but I think it was misrepresented. And so we're going we're gonna to get to there, uh, to the clear teaching passage where the extent of the atonement is directly addressed in Scripture and um, how I think the Calvinist interpretation um, doesn't undermine the power of this passage to prove unlimited atonement. Okay, so that's, that's, that's just the summary. <laughs> that's just the intro. Here we go. We're digging in. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I do appreciate you guys joining with us. I, 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 by the way, I'm going to say I don't intend to do this constant back and forth on these issues. I have a lot of videos people make in response to me. And I did pick one of, one of them to respond to today with Dr. James White's video. But don't, just for those who are watching, don't expect me to respond to everybody's videos or to respond to whatever next response comes out. I'll watch it because I highly respect James White and love him as a brother. And I'll definitely consider everything he has to share. But I don't, I don't plan on taking my once-a-week major live stream and making it all response videos to the same issue further down the rabbit hole, so to speak. So I'm covering new issues, and I think it's worth doing this time around. Um, all right, 
Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. This is the thing that I was told I did not address. And because I didn't address it, I had completely ignored the issue of limited atonement. By the way, James White's video is in the description. My original video on limited atonement, also in the description. And a playlist of every video I have that deals with Calvinism in the description. So here's how Dr. White and, and other Calvinists, they use this concept of Trinitarian harmony in the atonement, the first objection that we'll handle. And I'll spend more time on this one than the others. They use it like a trump card. It's like saying this issue um, of Trinitarian harmony, it becomes this immovable theological reality. So that discussion of verses, like the ones I brought in my last video, verses that seem to refute limited atonement, that's a secondary issue because this primary issue trumps those scattered verses and says, nope, we have this theological framework you cannot violate. Um, that's kind of how it functions. And I'm going to play some clips to show you what, what I mean. Here's clips from uh, Dr. White's video where he explains the importance of Trinitarian harmony in the atonement and shows you how it's used, why we should bother talking about it, even though we have seemingly clear verses that refute limited atonement. The only meaningful biblical way you can address the issue of the subject of the atonement is to see it as the act of the triune God. And hence, you must understand the Father's role and purpose, the Son's role and purpose, and the Spirit's role and purpose. You must see the atonement not merely as one act separated from everything else, but you must see how that act is a part of of the specific intention of the triune God to glorify himself. Um, <clears throat> so th this is, in other words, this is like central. You, again, you can use this to trump the texts that I was using. Let me share another video. Um, this is actually, in his video responding to me, this is the only clip of my video he played was a part at the end of my video where I said, I'm not dealing with Trinitarian harmony today because I think that the texts I've brought um, clearly refute the, the idea of limited atonement, and this was his response. That was, that was the whole point. That is the whole point. If, if you don't deal with that, you're not dealing with the issue. A at least not as it's being presented by us. So I'm not even handling the issue, I'm ignoring it. Uh, let me play one more, one more clip. Uh, to help un get this point across. And then you, you, need to, you need to hear what we're saying. If y'all are going to respond, then you, you, need to, you need to hear what we're saying. If you're going to respond, you need to hear what we're saying. That's the idea. Um, so, I'm, in other words, I did a video that, sorry, I'm still really small. I did a video that, that unpacked and handled the doctrine of limited atonement, dealt with several objections, and gave multiple scriptures to support that Christ died for everyone. And the response from a, from a you know, Calvinist thinker that we've, we've got here, who I respect and love, says, Mike, you didn't even handle it. You ignored the real issues. So this is how Trinitarian harmony in the atonement is used like a trump card. Like, hey, you haven't even really addressed the major issues, Mike. You've just skipped over them. And so um, now <clears throat> this is, this is I, think, I think, often the case um, where the, Ar the Arminian, or the, I'm not an Arminian, by the way, <laughs> but the Arminian or the non-Calvinist, they will bring scripture that says, ha, this refutes that doctrine of Calvinism. And the Calvinist says, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring not, not just scripture, but a theological framework, a, th a theological principle that will trump your scripture. I, of course, started my video, the beginning of my video. I wonder if I, yeah, I have a clip here. Notice what I said at the beginning of my video. I said, I think I have 
a good reason why this scripture actually trumps your theological framework. So try to track with this, because if you understand this, you understand some of the major differences between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. If you can understand where James White's coming from and where I'm coming from. It seems that the majority of the reasons people offer for limited atonement to support this particular doctrine is um, philosophical reasoning. It's not based upon, here's what the scripture teaches clearly about limited atonement. It's rather, here's what the Bible says about other issues. And I think logically, when we apply that to limited atonement, we get the doctrine of limited atonement. I'm not really planning on covering that kind of stuff today because I'll just say I, I think I can trump that logic or that philosophy by saying even if you feel your logic and theology is good, if the Bible disagrees with you, you should reconsider that that logic may be wrong about how you're applying one doctrinal truth to a different doctrinal question. So this is kind of like an important point and this is one of the reasons why I thought it'd be fruitful to do a response video because here I am bringing these scriptures and the response is, eh, you ignored the real issues. Well, let me deal with those issues. Now I've dealt with both. I've dealt with these clear teaching scriptures and now I'm going to deal with Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. So this might be a fruitful thing because we're talking, we're on the same page, put it that way. So again, let's summarize this, this, this concept again for those who've never heard it. You might need to hear it again. The idea is the father only elects certain people to be saved, right? The son saves those people only. He dies for them. Right? He dies for only the people God elects. Then the Holy Spirit only regenerates the elect. And then this is harmony in the atonement. Um, the conflict comes in, according to this idea, the conflict comes in if the Son, if Jesus tries to save all people, well, he's trying to save people the Father didn't send him to save because the Father only elected certain people. And then, you know, Jesus then goes rogue. Uh, Jesus is paying for people the Father didn't want him to. And so the solution is Jesus really didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect in order to preserve the, the doctrine of who God is, the harmony within the Trinity. Um, so, yeah, this is a pretty big deal, right? Because then we're saying if Jesus died for all people, you're threatening the doctrine of who God is, the theology of God's very character and nature. Now, I have problems with this in principle. In principle, before we even get to texts that are used to support this doctrine, I have problems with the very idea itself, and I want to share some of those with you. Um, there's a lot of other issues people bring up that I'm not going to bring up. I'm just going to share things that I thought I felt were compelling as challenges to Thea or Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. Number one, um, one problem, it deals, it depends rather, it depends on only a single intention of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the atonement. It depends on the idea that the Father has a limited intention that Jesus will only die for the elect. Like, because that, that's what we're assuming. We're just, we're assuming, or I think it's being assumed, because I don't think there's any passage in the scripture that says it in any clear sense. And so if, if I say the Father only wants these elect people saved, that seems to be the, the crooks of the issue. I got to prove that that's all the Father wants before I can say the Son can't disagree with the Father. And that is something I think that is not established in the text of scripture. I think the Father elects, you know, the Son pays, the Spirit actualizes. I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But I think that there's more information that we have in Scripture, so we're not limited to that information. I also think it's actually refuted by clear teaching passes in Scripture, and I, I shared these in my previous video, but I'm going to go into them again because I know most of you probably won't go and watch that other video right now. Um, so 1 John 2.2, 2, this was one I really sat on, and uh, James White objected to this, to my interpretation here. I'll come to that towards the end of this video, his objections, but let me just put it out here to show you that I think that this clearly refutes Trinitarian harmony in the atonement as, as a, uh, 
as a um, fruitful avenue, you know. And so First uh, John 2, 2, it says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus dies not just for our sins, but for the whole world. And I will establish later, as I did in my last video, that whole world here most certainly includes at least some non-elect people. That's, that's my whole point on the whole world. So he's a propitiation. It's just the Bible clearly says Jesus died for more than just believers. He died for unbelievers, in particular, the, the, the non-elect. I'll, I'll explain that in more detail later. Um, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, and these are not new. None of these passages are new. Calvinists are like, I knew you'd go there. I knew you'd quote that, Mike. Well, yes, of course you did, because these are the important, these are the crucial passages. I'm not surprised you knew I'd go there. Um, but I think that they still hold their ground, uh, even amongst, in, in the midst of the rebuttals that at least I'm aware of. Um, so 1 Timothy 4.10, for this end, we both, uh, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's the savior of all, especially of those who believe. So there's a sense in which Jesus saves all. He's the savior of all. And in another sense, especially of those who believe. This this works with unlimited atonement, but limited application. That that works perfectly fine. Second um, Peter 2.1. And notice the point of what I'm sharing with these three verses I'm giving you right now. The point is, you can't say Jesus couldn't possibly have died for everyone because it would mean he's in conflict with the Father. Like, you can't use this logical construct. When Scripture clearly teaches he died for all people, that would be my uh, my case here. Um, so put away all... Um, uh, oh, wait, this is First Peter. I need Second Peter. Uh, but false prophets... Also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So these people are people who in the future will not be saved. They will have swift destruction. And they're denying the master who bought them. So they were bought. Jesus, he, he, his, his purchase was made on their behalf. And uh, yet they're not in the future going to be saved. Um, that, that would be, a, I think, a, a simple and valid interpretation of second Peter two, one. Um, and there's other passages too, but my, my point is, um, saying that this concept that Jesus died for people who will not be saved, that this causes conflict in the Trinity. It doesn't undo the fact that scripture teaches that that's exactly what happened, that Jesus died for people who aren't saved. And so I don't think it's right to use this, this Trump card, um, for that reason. But let me give some other responses to Trinitarian Harmony and the Atonement. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this particular issue. We'll spend less time on some of the other issues. Um, what else would, would help would help refute um, my position here? Um, or excuse me, the, the Trinitarian Harmony Atonement. What would help refute it? It would be just this. I only need the same complexity in the Father's desires as there is in the work of Christ. So that the Father, he has a genuine desire for all to be saved but will only save those who have faith in Jesus and that his, his, that complexity is in the father's intentions. I'm going to send the son to pay for all that whoever believes in him will be saved. If that's in the father's heart, then there's no disunity. There is no disharmony in the Trinity. Then the son's sacrifice, it can be for all people, but only apply to those who have faith. The Holy Spirit can call all to come, but only regenerate those who have faith. That, that means we have Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. This seems really easy to, to overcome. 
this seemingly huge objection. It seems, it seems to, on my end, it seems very easy to overcome. So do I have scripture that supports this, that shows the Father has an intention that Jesus would die for all people, or and his intention, his desire is that all would be saved, you know, and then the, the, the uh, requirement is that they might have faith, that they would, have, they would believe in Christ. And I think we have this kind of support in scripture. So Romans 10.21 says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What's interesting about Romans 10.21 is that um, this actually has application in Romans to the people of Israel rejecting Jesus and rejecting his salvation. And God's attitude and posture towards them is, I'm holding out my hands to you, which means a genuine offer. Now, if limited atonement is true, there is no genuine offer of salvation because Jesus didn't actually, for those who were not elect, because Jesus didn't actually die for them. So there is no real offer, no genuine offer. And some Calvinists will say there is, and I don't follow the logic there. It, 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 seems, um, it seems irrational to say that there's a genuine offer of salvation when Jesus didn't die for you. Like, that's not genuine. That's not a genuine offer. Uh, but yet Romans 10.21 implies that Jesus is offered genuinely but not received. God's reaching his hand out, but they're rejecting it. Uh, another passage that is sometimes brought up in this, in this debate is Ezekiel 33.11. Speaking of God's attitude towards, towards um, those that are, and certainly some of these are non-elect, some of these people in Ezekiel 33.11. Um, Say to them as I live, declares the Lord declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, many of those to whom Ezekiel wrote did not turn back, which means that we would include them in those who, if you had a Calvinist mindset, you're thinking they were, well, some Calvinists, not all, that they were predetermined ahead of time that they were going to be rejecting God's will, and yet here, God's, God's call. And yet here God's like, I want you to, and I want you to turn back. I desire for you to turn back. Please turn back. He's appealing to their choice in this case. Another scripture that talks about God's intent is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And I'll share this, and I'm also going to share with you um, a little bit of um, what the, uh, at least one Calvinist interpretation of this passage, so that you can kind of hear both sides a little bit. Okay, here it says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, uh, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, verse 4, all people, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here we have what on this on the face of it looks like the Father's desire, his intent in the atonement is that um, all people would be saved. He desires that, and um, then we have um, Christ, who gives himself for all. So it would be probably the same all, the same all in both. Tech in context here, one ver two verses apart rather. The Father wants all people saved. Jesus gave Himself a ransom for all, for all people. It would be the same group as the ones the Father wants to be saved. I would say that. Now, this seems pretty simple. Um, Christ died for everyone, and God wants them all to be saved. But it, He leaves it up to your will whether you will receive the gospel of Christ. Now, that is not a Calvinist perspective. That is 
That is my perspective. That is my understanding of it. And I think that this passage refutes limited, limited atonement. Now, there is a Calvinist response to this passage that I'm, that I'm familiar with. Um, a Calvinist would say, um, this isn't all people. This is all kinds of people. God doesn't want everyone saved. He wants all types of people saved. Jews, Gentiles, Romans, barbarians, Scythian, slave, free. Like, there's all kinds of people he wants saved. And at first you're like, I don't see any justification for this. But they back up a little bit. And this is why I read all the way from chapter 2, verse 1. And they say, but look, God wants supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings to be made for all people. So here's all people the first time in the passage. And all people here, according to the Calvinist interpretation, at least one Calvinist interpretation, is all people represents kings and all who are in high positions. And then, so it's types of people. God wants us to pray for all kinds of people, including kings, including people who aren't kings. But even this fails, because if we're going to say the all that God wants saved are related to the all in verses 1 and 2, we have to recognize that we're not being told to pray for some of all people who are in high positions, but all who are in high positions. All. So this is, this is not a some of the people in the category of high positions. This is everybody in that category. So, so again, we're not limiting things here to an elect group within a category of people like kings, but just everybody. So we're praying for everybody is the idea. And also he dies for everybody. And God desires that everybody be saved. I don't see any good other interpretation here. Uh, let me give you one more passage about the intent, the father's intent so, to show that there is no disagreement here in the Trinity um, when it comes to this. And I know, I know this video is not going to convince James White. James White's heard all this from probably smarter guys than me. And he's already thought it through and he has his opinions. This video is for you guys. Just like his, if he does a response, it's not for me. It's for you. It's to help other people, you know, think this through. And so uh, I hope it's fruitful for that. Um, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, some would take this and, and read this into, um, uh, read into this, the elect. It's referring to the elect. He, he doesn't want any of the elect to perish. He doesn't want, uh, he wants all of the elect to reach repentance. But for those who really care about just good verse by verse study practices, you got to feel some tension there. Like you're, you're adding to the text. That's just not what it says. I think you're just adding to the text when you say that. This sounds a lot like Ezekiel to me. Ezekiel, where he's like, I'll oh, turn from your wicked way. I don't, want, I don't take any delight in the death of the wicked. I want you to turn and be saved. And so here, the same thing is what we're getting in this Second Peter passage, Second Peter 3.9. I know there's other Calvinist responses to these things, including every verse I brought up, um, but I don't think they do the job. And uh, it would make this video really long if I tried to encounter every objection on my path of explaining things. So we have here what I've given you. Let me tell you what I told you so far. <laughs> That the Father does have an intention that Jesus pay for all people because he desires all people to be saved. And that it depends upon the application of that is to uh, those who will actually have faith in Christ, who will respond to the call. That, that seems to be the case, right? The atonement was intended to provide payment for all people, but only be applied to those who believe. That seems to be a very simple biblical understanding that seems consistent. And um, these clear teaching passages support it, in my opinion. Um, let's go to um, another objection to Trinitarian harmony and the atonement as an objection. And it is that it assumes that if one thing is true, another thing is true. What do I mean? 
it assumes that if God elects somebody, that that necessitates Jesus only pays for those people. And again, that that isn't necessarily like you could easily you could easily believe in individual election that God individually elects all you know each person, and Jesus pays for all people. I, like I don't see any reason why I can't believe both of those things. And and I mean, give me a really careful, thought out reason why I can't just affirm both of those things. So there's, it, it's an unnecessary uh, correlation. So what would help Trinitarian Harmony and Atonement would be a passage in the Bible that clearly says that the Father only wants Jesus to die for some people. That would be that would be really helpful. Or a passage that says the Holy Spirit only calls certain people to come to Christ, and other people he 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 has no no calling is presented from the from the Holy Spirit. There's no beckoning. There's no true gospel presentation to those people. Um, or a passage that says that Jesus, he simply didn't die for certain people. Like, I just need one verse that says, like, Jesus did not die for Judas, right? Or Jesus didn't die for Caiaphas. Like, that's all I need is one of those kinds of things. Or an exclusive statement that Jesus only died for certain people, right? Jesus died for, for us and only us and nobody else. You know, that would be pr- a pretty big deal. In fact, you wouldn't need this Trinitarian Harmony and the Atonement whole, you know, construct. You wouldn't need it. Because the construct itself is one step removed from just a plain teaching in scripture that Jesus only died for certain people and not others. Um, which we don't have any text that says that. So, let's go now. That, that's my, in principle, objections to Trinitarian Harmony and Atonement. I want to go now to um, the, the one passage that uh, Dr. White brought up and some other Calvinists bring up to support Trinitarian Harmony in the Atonement. So, let's hear this case. This is going to be dealing with Um, Romans chapter 8 is the passage we're going to be looking at and this is what James White did in his video so um, this is it in a nutshell I I, I wanted to just play a clip where he just summarizes but I couldn't find a a, a snippet where it's like here's the argument in clarity you know start to finish boom here's the summary of it I just couldn't find a snippet like that and so I'll give you my summary this is my honest attempt to summarize it well so you can evaluate me tell me if I did it right um but it's based on Romans 8, and it's called the Golden Chain of Redemption. And the idea is in Romans 8, verse 29 through 32, we're getting a, um, a case for limited atonement based on Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. Here's how it goes. Let's first look at the verse, and then I'll tell you how they use it. Romans 8, 29. 29, not 200. There it is. Um, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the idea here is that the person, the people who are foreknown are the same exact group as those who are predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So that those words are used um, not only inclusively of those people, but exclusively of those people. You'll understand why that's important in a minute. But so the people who were foreknown were predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So that verses 29 and 30 present, present uh, one group of people referring to the elect. Um, I think the elect of all time is, is how he would interpret this. Um, but none of this has to do, in my opinion, with the extent of the atonement. So, you know, like saying, okay, so all those things are true, but how does that say Jesus didn't die for the unsaved or those who end up rejecting him? Uh, I mean, not that you can even reject him. If he didn't die for you, what are you rejecting? But, um, but if you go down to verse 32, you, you can try to bridge the gap between um, the foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, 
and then say yes, and it's also those who Jesus died for exclusively. So let me try to, I'm trying to build this case as clearly as I can. It's actually really hard to find a, a Calvinist, at least for me, I had a hard time finding a Calvinist who would summarize this Trinitarian harmony and atonement from Romans 8 in a simple, um, defensible way. I, I, I had a hard time finding it. Usually it's really drawn out and difficult to summarize it, and it's important to summarize things, I think. Um, so what we do is we go to verse 32. Th- verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So now we're saying, okay, those who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, these same people are the ones whom Jesus died for because he gave up his son for us all. So us all is predestined, called, all that stuff. Therefore, now we can say Jesus died for the elect and for only the elect. So again, we're taking an inclusive statement, Jesus died for us, and we're making it exclusive and only us. That's what this Trinitarian harmony argument requires. It requires not just that he died for us. He died for only us. Only those who were predestined called. Da, 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 da. Um, I, I, don't, I don't agree. From the, from the start, I, I can grant a largely Calvinistic interpretation of this passage of Romans 8. And I can say, um, okay, foreknown, let's say foreknowledge, and I'm not going to get into foreknowledge. I have a whole video on it in my Calvinist playlist that you guys can check out, and it deals with this passage. It deals with foreknowledge. Um, but let's suppose that I grant the Calvinist view of foreknowledge, and we say foreknown means God, like, chose you. He loved you and elected you. Foreknown means he's relationally chose you for salvation. Let's say it does mean that. Does that therefore mean that everything else said about those who are foreknown cannot be said in any sense about those who are not chosen, those who are not going to be saved? And that's where I think it, it falls apart. This is a, a negative inference fallacy. And I know some Calvinists are rolling their eyes when I say this, but I think this is a legitimate challenge. I could grant all of these things and just say, okay, it's not exclusive when it comes to the extent of the atonement. The passage does not make it clear that Jesus died only for us all. It doesn't say that. And other passages do make it clear that Jesus did die for non-elect people. So I, I don't have a case for this Trinitarian harmony in this passage. I don't have the exclusivity of Jesus' death only for a certain group of people because it's inclusively saying he gave him up for us. Um, and there's, a, 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 there's again, this, this passage, 1 Timothy 4.10, I'll bring back in. Jesus, God is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So there's, there's a sense in which, a special sense in which Jesus is the savior of those who believe. And that's what Romans 8 is talking about. doesn't mean he didn't also um, offer salvation to all people because of the inclusiveness of his atonement. So I can affirm both senses. I can affirm that he died for my sins specifically because I'm, I'm a Christian. And oh yes, he died for me. But I can also affirm he died for those who reject him. And we'll go back to 1 John 2 too, right? He's a propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. These are clear teaching passages. What I'm doing with Romans 8 is I'm, I'm drawing this sort of, um, this affirmation of a truth. I'm making that, I'm, I'm saying, therefore, um, it's exclusive, not just an inclusive statement. Therefore, exclusive, Jesus only died for, for us. And yet we have clear teaching passages that seem to dis- dispute that. So Romans 8 doesn't force it on us, and other passages seem to refute it. So there is debate on this passage. I just don't see how uh, it rules out the Father's genuine desire for all to be saved, but only saving those who have faith in Jesus. 
the son's sacrifice being for all people, but only apply to those who have faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit calling all to come while only regenerating those who have faith in Christ. So Romans 8, though, it says um, those who he predestined, he also called. And so they also will say in Romans 8 that, <coughs> pardon me, that, um, that Jesus, because the, in this golden chain of redemption, as it's called, um, I think just by Calvinists, but the, this, this section, it says, you know, who's going to be foreknew, predestined, he called. Okay, well, called. So God only calls those who were foreknown and predestined. Those are the only ones that are called. And I would say, I, I don't think that that is the point of the text. I don't think it's making this clear, exclusive statement. I could say um, that those who are called and predestined are justified and glorified. It doesn't mean that no one else is called, but rather those who are called and predestined and foreknown and all, all of these things apply to all of to the person who has um, the first couple in the list. That would be the idea. That was, that's one interpretation possible right there um, that I think is legitimate. So God does call the elect, but he also seems to call everyone else. Uh, many are called, but few are chosen, scripture says. Uh, we're to go to preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. I mean, this couldn't possibly be every kind of person, but not every... No, we're obviously told to preach the gospel to everyone, which in, involves a promise, you know, that, that Jesus died for you so that you could be forgiven if you will repent and believe. Yet the if you repent and believe isn't even true if Jesus didn't die for them. So that's a serious problem with limited atonement that I think is often ignored uh, by those who promote it, in my opinion. There's another challenge. Um, and this comes from Dr. White's video. He says that synergists, and by the way, I'm not a synergist, and I have a video on that <laughs> in my Calvinist playlist. But he says, synergists have Christ dying for all sorts of people who will never be justified. And I think that Romans 8 doesn't limit who Christ died for. It's just about the benefits of those who are, who are believing. That this, this fits the context of Romans throughout. You have to have faith. You have to believe. It builds this whole case. The whole bookends around Romans 8 are you have to believe so that you can be in Christ, so that you might have the benefits of Christ. And yeah, um, Jesus did die for people who won't be justified. That, I do agree that that is what I'm saying. I just think that scripture is also saying it. Let me give a, another scripture here. Romans 10, verse 10. It's the same book. <clears throat> uh, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So yeah, in Romans, the, the emphasis, of course, is on our response to the genuine offer of the gospel that we would believe and we would call upon him. That's consistent in the book of Romans. I don't think Romans 8 can be used to try to sort of refute um, that genuine offer of the gospel, and the genuine provision that God has given. It just doesn't make sense. The problem is not God didn't, God didn't call you or God didn't provide for you. The problem is you didn't believe. That, <clears throat> that would be the problem in Romans. Uh, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. And so, yeah, we have um, the main issue with the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8 is it pushes the text past its intention. It assumes sort of second level meanings, implications that are not clear in the text itself and that seem to be refuted by other passages of scripture. 
so um, let me see. I'm just looking at my notes here. I I, I do this is gonna be a long video, and I, I I'm I always make notes and then think about skipping sections. So let me just look at my notes and decide if I should read this whole next section here. Um, yeah, I guess I need to. Um, so re- related to Trinitarian harmony, uh, why this weighs in on the issue of the atonement is. It's meaning to show that Jesus's mission was to only do what he did for the benefit of those who were foreknown, called, justified, and glorified, excluding the extent of Christ's work to the sin of those outside the group of foreknown, um, you know, called, justified, all that. Um, But the passage doesn't say that. It never speaks to the topic of uh, refusing or, you know, denying that Christ offered for other people who reject him. So again, that's the negative inference fallacy. That's, that's, I think that's a clear negative inference fallacy. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Dr. White, in, you know, in your video, you called this a canard. The ne- negative inference fallacy just called it a canard. But it, I'll just say I am convinced that it is the case. And I think a lot of other people are as well. So maybe you guys could explain how that's not a canard um, rather than just saying it is. I say that respectfully as a brother. Um, <clears throat> so in reference to verse... 32 Romans um, yeah no 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 I'm going to move forward okay so finally as we move off the topic of Trinitarian harmony and the atonement which I was asked to address and I was told that nobody addresses this by the way um, I was told uh, David Allen in particular um, it was said that he ignores this and doesn't address it but in both of his books on the atonement he addresses Trinitarian harmony and the atonement specifically by name he deals with both of them I think in his book the Atonement, that book, uh, he addresses it in greater detail than in the other one, um, at least in a specific section identifying for this topic, Trinitarian Harmony. Um, so it's dealt with in detail, and, and he gives a list of objections to it that are things worth thinking about. But if, if, if Thea, if Trinitarian Harmony the Atonement is important, and uh, we did see that Jesus died for all people, I think we could flip this whole idea of Trinitarian Harmony on its head. I could say, hey, if Jesus clearly, like 1 John 2, 2, dies for all people, including the non-elect, well, then it must be the Father's intention for Jesus to do so because there won't be disunity in the Trinity. So you could use this argument against uh, the the Calvinist view of limited atonement just as easily as someone might try to use it against uh, my view. Okay, the second objection. Now we're moving on to number two, and now we're going to move a lot quicker. (coughs) Pardon The second objection is this idea that Jesus failed, Jesus failed if he was trying to save all people because not all people actually get saved. So if Jesus in dying was dying for all and not all end up saved, he's a failure. And to this, I I say, I understand the power of this because obviously it is blasphemous to say that Christ is a failure. So it's powerful in that. It, it appeals to my piety, my sense of love for Christ um, and the glory of God. But I feel it's a powerless, you know, a powerless challenge to the idea of universal extent of Christ's atonement. Because what if the goal of Jesus, what if his goal was, I want to die for all so that anybody who believes in me will be saved? Well, now Jesus hasn't failed. And yet that's exactly what we're saying. This is what, this is the doctrine we're actually saying. We're not saying Jesus tried and failed to save. Rather, we're saying Jesus paid for all that those who believe would receive the benefits of his offering and of his sacrifice. And it seems so simple and so biblical. Let me take you to a passage you guys, you probably have never heard this verse before. It's really going to probably blow you away. It's in the Gospel of John. 
chapter 3, verse 16. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> this passage, it seems to be saying God sent his son to die for everyone so that those who believe would be saved. Well, this is, this is, this is a success. The son has succeeded. He died for all that those who believe would be saved. That would be my understanding of the passage. And we'll deal with the concept of world a little bit later in this video. So this idea that the sun failed, if, the, um, if, if limited atonement's not true, then the sun failed, that seems to just be a non-starter. It just doesn't get off the ground, in my opinion. It misrepresents the position of non-Calvinists, uh, actually. All right, number three, third objection. Told you I'd move faster. Um, there is an equation or a connection of intercession with atonement and it's, it's, a, it, it's a little bit complicated if you haven't heard it before. So I'm going to try and break it down as simply as I can. But let me, um, let me play some clips where uh, Dr. White talks about this issue. The idea, in short, is that whoever Jesus intercedes for um, is, the one, is the same as the people he died for. And everyone he intercedes for will be saved. And therefore, everyone he died for will be saved. And therefore, whoever isn't saved, he doesn't intercede for. And he didn't die for it. That's kind of the idea. Let me play a clip from him. But I don't remember you saying anything about intercession and connecting atonement with intercession at all. I, I, I may have missed it. But I think it's vitally important. And, and until you deal with that, I, that we're never going to get anywhere. Because I don't think you're really dealing with Paul's theology at that point. Okay, I'm going to play another clip uh, also um, <clears throat> regarding this in a second, but uh, let me first uh, let me first respond a little bit to that. Um, the concern is that I didn't mention intercession in my video and that my points are therefore basically irrelevant as a result. And this is something that I I understand here. This is what's showing me. Okay, Calvinists, non-Calvinists, we're talking right past each other. Here's me, a list of scriptures that seem to clearly refute limited atonement. Here's the Calvinists. Yeah, nothing you said matters, Mike. Because you didn't deal with intercession and you didn't deal with Trinitarian harmony in the atonement. So nothing you said matters. So we're taking right past each other. So this video, I'm talking right to you guys. This is the idea. Um, so uh, let me play the, the next clip and we'll see. Does this intercession thing really refute the idea that Jesus died for all people? The person who promotes this universal atonement concept must, of necessity, unless you're a universalist, reject the idea that the audience for whom the Son intercedes is the same audience for which he dies. But it's right here in Paul. Um, we have to reject the idea that the audience for whom Jesus intercedes is the same as the audience for whom Jesus died. Is that right? Do I have to? Like, is that, is that really logically required in my view? Or can I just say that Jesus intercedes for all who come to God through him? which is available to all, but only applied to those who believe. That like the atonement, the intercession of Christ is made available to everybody, but it's only applied to those who believe, which makes my theology really logically tight, I think. It makes a lot of sense. In uh, Romans 8, it's speaking of those who have received Christ, um, not not necessarily 
those for whom Christ exclusively paid for, right? Romans 8, when you get to Romans, because he connects the intercession with Hebrews in Romans 8 in, in uh, James White's video. In Romans 8, it's speaking about those who are in Christ, right? We've, we've shown we're all, we're all lost in sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Uh, that is by faith that we'll be saved in Romans 4, 5. We deal with the sin nature and the flesh and all that, Romans 6, 7, and um, how we're, we're, we're dead and then, and then we're made new in Christ and we're married to, a new, to, to, to him as his bride. And then Romans 8, it's about the benefits of those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ. That's the idea. Not just the benefits of those for whom Jesus died, but those who are in Christ, who have received the things for which Jesus did. Uh, the things Jesus did. So, um, yeah. His, his point, though, when you get to this concept of intercession, is that Jesus, he dies for uh, just certain people and and and. and because whoever he dies for, he also intercedes for, and whoever he died and intercedes for is automatically going to be saved. Therefore, you either have universalism and everyone's in heaven, or you have limited atonement and there's no other option. And this, I think, is a false dilemma. I think that uh, limited atonement is is being forced on us through a bad reading of scripture. So we're gonna we're gonna look at the details of intercession, and I'm gonna sh- share with you guys some refutations that I think are really valid, and I think they do directly answer the issue of intercession. Um, Now let me quote to you a little bit of what James White said on the topic of intercession. I'm going to put up the scripture. He quoted Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now it's worth noting that he says that the, the the synergist, which I'm not, but I I, I am not a Calvinist, um, would would always focus on who draw near to God through him. And he kind of derided the idea, and maybe other Calvinists would follow his his lead here, that we would focus on this concept in this verse. And I would just say it seems really strange to me uh, to to be bothered that I'd focus on a caveat in the text of Scripture about who Jesus is is able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That the them he intercedes for is those who draw near to God. That's consistent with my theology. But James White's perspective here and the Calvinist perspective seems to be that um, rather than Jesus interceding for whoever draws near, it's a whoever thing. He's there standing to intercede and whoever draws near, he's interceding for them. Rather, it's he intercedes for a select group of people who he died for and they're all going to be saved um, unless, unless you're going to say Christ failed in some sense or He's interceding for people in hell and things like that. Um, So here's how James White said it. He says, when you look at this text in any fair manner, I'm quoting him now, um, from 55 minutes and 40 seconds into his video. (laughs) He says, when you look at this text in any fair manner, its focus is on the capacity and power of Jesus. The text is functioning to demonstrate to Jewish Christians that there's nothing to go back to. It's all been fulfilled in him. Its focus is on the mediator's capacity. Um, And then he, he goes on and basically says, to bring everyone to God who comes through him. I can kind of agree with all of that. Uh, I don't see any issue with agreeing with all of it right there. Um, except when he says, he goes on to say, um, God God can't do anything apart from man's cooperation. That in my view, in, in the limited atonement view, I'm saying, Jesus, here he is, he's interceding, but it won't work unless man cooperates. And that God can't, that's a key word, can't save unless... Um, we come to God through him. And I'd say it's not about can't. It's, it's just about what God wants. God could save us. He could just zap us all into salvation if he cho- choose, chooses to do. But he doesn't. He says, no, it's my choice. 
you better have faith. This is my condition I'm putting on you. It's fully in the power of God to give us this condition of faith. And it doesn't have to do with limiting God's power, limiting God's ability, limiting Christ's sacrifice or his intercession in some sort of, with some sort of weakness. It's a condition that God has placed upon salvation. It's consistent through scripture. You have to have faith. That's the requirement. And that's consistent throughout the book of Hebrews as well. So James White's complaint against the, the, the non-Calvinist here is that we're saying something like, um, yeah, Jesus did all that, but I have to come to God through him. And that's, it's a complaint. But Hebrews 7.25, the very verse he brought up, that's what it says. Like, those who draw near to God through him. And you can't fault me for just looking at the text and highlighting uh, what, is, what, it is, uh, what it's saying right there in the text. I don't think there's any way to really fault for that. So um, when I say that the intercession of Christ requires salvation if he's interceding for you, I think I'm just getting the idea wrong on what intercession is in the book of Hebrews or in the text of scripture. Let me give you an example that I think really drives this home, and it's from Ephesians chapter 2. In the Calvinist perspective that Dr. White promotes here, um, Jesus is interceding, and therefore it guarantees the current salvation of everyone, the, right now, salvation of everyone for whom he's interceding. And his intercession is not an open intercession for whoever comes to him exactly. It's rather, no, 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 the intercession is based upon who he died for. Select group he died for, select group he intercedes for, those people, they cannot have any sort of judgment, any wrath upon them, they, and they will be saved, and they couldn't possibly not be saved. That's the view. Well, that would require that from the time of the cross from the time Jesus died for them and started interceding, that they were then saved and there was no wrath for them. But Jesus' intercession doesn't benefit you from the moment he begins doing it, but from the moment you believe. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. And you were dead in your trespasses, in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Clearly, people who were at the time Paul's writing to the Ephesians, that now they're saved at that moment, they're saved now, they're in Christ, Christ is interceding for them and they're saved now, but they were not saved, whether it was a year ago or 10 years ago, they were not saved at that time. They were under God's wrath. So this breaks the theological construct of intercession that I think Calvinism's forcing on us here. It says, hey, Jesus had died, risen, and was already interceding for them, but they were still children of wrath. They were still dead in their trespasses. And Ephesians uh, verses, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, or yeah, 11 through 13, really, it pushes this even further and says, therefore, remember... That at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. There's that term, the world again. Uh, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is the thing that brought them near, but it didn't bring them near when Jesus died and began interceding. It brought them near when they believed, as you read it in Ephesians 2, right? By faith or by grace, you have been saved through faith in this, uh, the, the gift of God and all that. So we've got this 
clear refutation, right? The presence of the intercessor in heaven is not effective until faith is present in the person. He draw, he's, he's interceding. And as soon as you draw near to God through him, now you experience the benefits. So we have the extent versus the application consistently presented in the scripture. That's, it seems a really strong refutation to this intercession objection. So Hebrews uh, is written um, about people who believe in Christ, not the elect of all time and all that kind of thing, but rather it's like, hey, you're believing in Jesus right now, so he's interceding for you right now. And anybody who believes in him, guess what? He's ever living to intercede for those who draw near to God through him. Um, that's the idea. Jesus isn't interceding for the elect of all time. That's not the concept and like the sort of timeless, eternal thing. He will do it forever, but that's not the focus in Hebrews. It's, it's rather he's, he's alive right now, so draw near to God through him. He's interceding for you. Um, whoever draws near to God through him. So there you go. Uh, th now number four. Let's take the fourth objection. And this is about false dilemmas. And this goes back to John Owen. This is considered a pretty powerful objection. And I'm going to put this one back on the screen. And like I said, I probably won't get to your guys' questions today only because of how long the live stream is going to go. I don't want to have a three-hour video. So um, uh, so yeah, uh, this, is the, this is the objection. You know, John Owen's objection gives us three options. He says, did Jesus die for all the sins of all men? All the sins of some men, some of the sins of all men. So let's hear it again, because again, for those who haven't heard this before, it's like, that's kind of weird, I'm trying to wrap your head around it. Um, so you have to pick one of these options. This is a legitimate set of options. I don't see another option in there. <laughs> he died for, and I'm going to say he died for all the sins of all men, number one. And John Owen's going to try to present a case, and uh, James White echoes some of John Owen's stuff, and so do many Calvinists. Um, and so let's respond to that. Let me read to you a, um, again from John Owen's own writings in um, his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, page 61. I may add this dilemma to our universalists, and by this he means those who think Jesus died for everyone, not uh, universalists in the, in the more modern sense we use the term. Um, God imposed his wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either all the sins of all men, or all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. There's our three choices. If the last some of the sins of all men, then we have all men, some sins to answer for. And so no man shall be saved. So I'm, I'm going to agree with him. Some of the sins of all men, option three, let's take that off the table. He didn't die for just certain sins. Um, there, that's definitely false. Um, so it's going to be between one and two. If the second, that is which we affirm, the Calvinists, um, that Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the world. If the first, why are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? Ah, so you can't keep punishing people if they've been their sins have been paid for. You will say because of their unbelief, they won't believe, which I would say that. But this unbelief, it is, is it not a sin? It, it, it is a sin. If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it or not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Let them choose which part they will. So the basic idea is if I say that God died for all the sins of all men, then you know, Christ, then, then Christ has already paid for including unbelief for everybody's sins. And therefore it's got to be universalism. He paid for everybody. So there, there can be no wrath for those for whom those whose sins have been paid for. That's the basic idea. And therefore they go, well, then God only died for some people. Option two. 
it's sort of logically forced upon us. Notice this is not forced upon us through uh, the, a text of scripture that clearly teaches something about these issues. It's forced upon us by this trilemma um, through a logical construct that I think has some flaws. So let's try and answer this. Um, there is a difference between the extant and the application, as I've said many times now. And um, this trilemma assumes that whatever the extant is, the application is. That's, that's where the trilemma falls apart. It's assuming that it, if Jesus died for someone, then his, his death for them is applied to them immediately and fully, and regardless of whether they believe or not. That's his whole thing about belief. But the Bible indicates that there are some for whom Christ died that are not saved. I mean, 1 John 2, 2 and, and 1 Timothy and these various passages we've already brought up. So I would, now let me talk a little bit. So I'm saying, before I move forward, uh, I'm saying the Bible refutes this idea. It refutes, it ref, the logic must be flawed because the clear teaching of scripture disagrees with the conclusion of the logic. Jesus did die for people who will not be saved. So something must be wrong with the logic. That would be my uh, contention. Uh, let's talk about unbelief, though. Um, unbe unbelief, like all sin, um, it, it's it, it's paid for by Jesus on the cross, but it's not forgiven until we receive Christ, right? The extent of the atonement, he paid for even your unbelief, but you don't receive the benefits until you trust in Christ. This means, I mean, if you take John Owen's perspective, it seems to say that Jesus forgives you he, when he pays for your sin, you're forgiven even if you're still in a state of unbelief. This means that people are forgiven before they even come to faith in Christ, before they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's what it would seem to imply. If you're going to hold this trilemma up and say that this is a true uh, a, a true uh, trilemma, you have to pick one of these options and that one's not working because it's going to mean that Jesus paid for unbelief and therefore, how could anyone be judged? Unbelief is forgiven because of the cross, but it's not forgiven when the cross event takes place. It's forgiven when one believes. As I already shared in the Ephesians passage, Ephesians chapter 2, um, the Bible clearly refutes the idea that people were saved from the moment of the cross, but rather they're saved by the cross at the moment of their belief when they receive Christ. Because there's a difference between the extent and the application. Access to application comes through faith, but the salvation is purchased purely by the work of Christ. So the Bible seems to clearly refute this idea. Um, I, I set aside John Owen's trilemma for those reasons. All right, let's move, move forward and look at number five. Double jeopardy or double payment as an objection to um, Christ dying for all people. And I actually have a clip here from uh, Dr. White. Let me play that now and try to hear this objection. And, and if your brain's getting muddy because you, we've, I've been talking for a while, pause, go get a glass of water, take a walk around the block and come back. <laughs> so you can really think this through because this is a common objection. This stuff is, is, is considered a very strong objection to the idea that Jesus died for all people. And so we want to be able to think it through. His body upon the tree. And if that's a universal salvation, then you are still left with how in the world, if that wrath due to that sin has already been fully paid in Christ, that there can be the punishment of that sin upon any individual simply based upon their not, quote-unquote, accepting something. And again, that is a backwards understanding of what acceptance means. The only person that, was, that, that there was concern about acceptance in the sacrifice of the Old Testament was not the people. It was, the, the, it was not offered to them. It was God accepting the sacrifice. And God 
has accepted the sacrifice. And so if that sacrifice has been made in behalf of every single individual, then it's already been accepted, and that's done. Universalism. Or Reformed theology. The middle is not consistent. There's actually a lot that was said there. I'm not going to respond to all of it. Let me quickly mention in passing um, the issue of acceptance. It seems like that doesn't cover the whole story of the Old Testament. I mean, the people had to come in faith and they had to participate, not through their works, but they had to uh, participate in their in their will. Um, And and look at God's attitude towards people whose sacrifices are made on their behalf, yet they have rebellious hearts still, and they're still rejecting God. And he's like, I'll have no more of those sacrifices. Your hearts are wicked. And so, yeah, the the condition of the person actually does matter, even in the Old Testament uh, sacrifice. Um, But there's different kinds of acceptance. God accepts the sacrifice in a different way than we accept the sacrifice. There are very different kinds of acceptance that are going on there. Anyway. Moving on to the main focus of this double jeopardy or double payment argument, basically we're saying, look, if Jesus paid for everyone, or the Calvinist is saying, then nobody can be justly under God's wrath anymore. There just can't be people in hell who have their sins already paid for. Yet some people are in hell or will be in hell under the wrath of God forever. Therefore, those people, they weren't paid for. And um, this, this I think, is a pretty powerful argument for people, but I'm going to try to explain some reasons why I think it's got problems. All right, let's, let's start with my favorite passage tonight, apparently, Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the idea. If one cannot suffer for the consequences of sins once the sins have been paid for, this is similar to the John Owen argument. It's related to it, really. But if you can't suffer under God's wrath or under any consequence for sins which have already been paid for, then how were the elect ever under wrath at any point in time after the cross? This is a good question. Because in Ephesians 2, they were dead in, they were they were yet elect, so based on limited atonement, their sins were paid for on the cross. These people in Ephesians 2, they were paid for, Jesus interceding for them. They're yet they were dead in trespasses and sins. They were um uh they were children of wrath, children of wrath. I mean, and when you when you go down further in the passage, as I already read this, so I'm just going to summarize. Um, they were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They had no hope and were without God in the world. Jesus had died for them, was living to intercede for them, and yet they were still under God's wrath and still se- still experiencing the separation caused by sin. So the consequences of sin are still upon people whom Jesus died for after the cross. This, this, this is double jeopardy then based on the construct that, oh, that's double payment. Well, then there it is. It's in Ephesians 2. The Bible is clearly teaching that there is double payment then. And then you, you have to simply suggest if your double payment argument is going to play out that you're just saying the Bible is contradicting logic or, or not logic, but justice. Um, I, I don't see any way around this. Apparently, though, Jesus' work, it's simply not applied until you believe And the mere work itself doesn't take your sin away until you apply it in faith. Your faith doesn't take your sin away. It's the work of Christ that does. But he won't do it until you believe. Now, some would say, well, then how does this work? I I mean, is it double payment? And I just say, well, um, I think that this is a bad logical construct trying to push a version of justice that is meant to simply push Calvinism on people. 
and we need to let go of it because it disagrees with scripture. I'm going to say that. In addition to that, I can say, well, it depends on your understanding of imputation of sin. And there are a couple different ways to resolve this issue. And you could say, well, Christ, he died for all sin. But that doesn't mean my sin was, um, uh, while he paid for my sin, it doesn't mean that my sin was taken off of me onto Christ. No, I'm not, not removed from me until I come to Christ. There's these different ways of dealing with this. And that maybe is an issue for another video. I'm not sure what the best way to resolve it is. Um, but I think we have a few good options and that we should just go with what scripture clearly teaches here. This double payment thing seems to fall short. Another illustration is this, that a pardon, once it's issued, means that a person, you know, wouldn't be able to be accused of their sins anymore or punished for their sins anymore. But, you know, even even in legal courts, a pardon that's issued that is not accepted by the person who's been pardoned, they reject that pardon, they're going to stay and suffer their sentence still. Um, there's actually legal precedence for that. And so there's, there's more going on here than our oversimplification of what we call double payment or double jeopardy. I think that um, it fails in a legal sense. It fails in that it, it, it's uh, assuming too much about imputation and how this all takes place. And it fails most of all uh, with, against the clear teaching of Scripture. All right, finally, <clears throat> finally, number six. <laughs> there are specific passages that teach that Jesus died for more than the elect. And I covered a bunch of them in my videos, so and I've covered a few today, so I'm not going to go back over all of them. But one in particular I want to bring out, because this is one uh, that Dr. White responded to, and I thought we could take the conversation to the next level, and it might be fruitful for people. And so I dealt with 1 John 2, 2, and I shared it with you guys earlier today, but I'll put it on the screen. Um, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And my contention is that phrase whole world includes people that are not elect. That, that's my contention. And I was only focusing on the people that were alive at the time. I wasn't focusing on people that were alive th throughout all eternity. I meant that from John's perspective in the first century, the phrase whole world, it did include people who had heard and rejected the gospel and were currently under the power of the enemy and who were not part of these, the, the uh, they were not all part of a group you could call the elect. And so um, that was my contention. But here's what um, uh, Dr. White said about this. So let's take a look at it. Unfortunately, um, there were numerous assumptions made. For example, uh, you had the assumption made that the word world always means all of humankind. And if you have really seriously dealt with Reformed theology and with our interpretation of Scripture, you know that we make a very strong argument that the default understanding, there, there will be contexts that will change this, but that the default understanding when you're talking about all the world in the New Testament would be, that is, Jews and Gentiles. The individualistic interpretation, which would mean every human being, and the hyper-individualistic interpretation, which would mean every human being who has ever lived, including the Amorite high priests and the Jebusites and, and the Babylonian uh, slaves and, and so on and so forth, uh, that lived long before the time of Jesus, um, that would not be the default assumption of any of the New Testament writers. Okay, there's a few problems <clears throat> that I have with this. And one is that um, his summary of my position is not my position. Uh, and I didn't say that in my video. And I think I was pretty clear in my video. I did not say, 
and this is not my position, this is not what I'm putting forward, that the word world, cosmos, it always means all of humankind. Uh, I didn't say that. And I didn't say it always means all of humankind throughout all eternity. I didn't say that either. In fact, I didn't assume either of those things were true. So let's try to get some clarity. What I said was that world in 1 John 2, 2, in that verse, it does not only refer to the elect. In fact, I went one step further and I did make a bigger claim that the word world, it never refers to only the elect. That's, that's what I said. In no place in scripture does the word world clearly refer to only the elect. And that's what we need it to refer to. Um, <clears throat> if the word whole world in 1 John 2, 2, if that phrase, and I'll put the verse up again for you because I want you to be able to think this through as you look at it. Um, if that phrase, the whole world, if it includes a single non-elect person, then limited atonement fails. That's all I need uh, for my theological point here. If the phrase means one person who's not elect, if that's in the whole world, then limited atonement fails. That's all that's needed. Uh, in response to this, uh, James White suggested that the default understanding of the world was Jews and Gentiles. And I find this a bit confusing um, uh, because that doesn't do any good or any help really to the Calvinist position. The Calvinist position doesn't need for the world to refer to Jews and Gentiles. They need for it to only refer to the elect. So it can be elect Jews and Gentiles. It can be elect barbarians or elect just Gentiles, but just the elect ones. But it has to refer to only the elect because if that phrase has one non-elect person in it, one, limited atonement fails because he is the propitiation for at least one non-elect person. So, uh, so then atonement is not limited to only the elect. Now, I dealt with two different Calvinist interpretations, and it's about 31 minutes in my original video, which is in the description, about 31 minutes in, I dealt with this passage and two different Calvinist interpretations. So it's not like I was being, I'm just, I'm here defending myself awkwardly. I wasn't ignorant, <laughs> and I didn't fail to deal with Calvinist interpretations on this passage, and I didn't say what, um, what he said I said. Not, I don't think he's, it's not malicious. Look, it, this is life. We, we, sometimes we don't hear each other in detail. We don't hear the nuance we're putting on our sentences. That's just what happens. But let's go through a little bit, and I'll build my case for why world, as I did in my previous video, why the word world in First John, it refers to um, at least one non-elect person, <laughs> And I think that's very, very clear. And so here we are, same word, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world, the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So here we are in 1 John 3, 1, not very far after the, the part we just read. It's the same book. And um, James White suggested that we shouldn't be reading 1 John 3, 1 to understand what 1 John 2, 2 is saying when it uses the term world. And I think that that is... I don't, I don't follow that. <laughs> I don't follow that. Um, I think that people would read the whole letter and he expected them to do so. Um, at any rate, we're going to look at every, uh, several occurrences of the word world in first John. And it doesn't exclusively mean the elect and therefore limited atonement fails. Um, so the world here though, is people who, who, um, who don't know God, um, and don't know Christ or don't know believers, rather. They don't know us, and they don't know him. They don't know Christ or God. Um, so 1 John 3.13 is another passage where world comes up in the same letter, 
to find out what he means by it. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Well, the world isn't talking exclusively about the elect. It must include, I mean, it's some non-elect people in there, right? Even if it's not every person from all time, it's certainly some people alive at the time who were not elect. That, to say it's just the elect is forcing uh, the passage to mean something that it just on the surface doesn't mean. Verse 3 of 1 John 4 says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So the world is not just the, the structure of ungodliness, right? It's, in, it's individuals, because the world's listening to them. And the world here is people who are actually listening to the spirit of Antichrist. So we're not speaking of just the elect here. That There's no case for that. The biggest passage in 1 John to read and that relates to this is in 1 John 5.19 because it not, it only says the world, but just like verse 2 of chapter 2, it says the whole world. The whole world. And it says here, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now in this case, 1 John 5.19, it seems to indicate that in John's mind, in his letter, he is writing, saying that the phrase the whole world seems to imply everyone who is not currently following Jesus. Now, that will include some elect and some non-elect people, but it seems very inclusive about everybody. And this is just building, you know, our understanding of the word based upon the context we read. And it seems very consistent. Um, uh, there's more on this topic. Um, at one point, uh, James White suggests, I'm trying to remember how he puts it, he suggested that and he didn't say it clearly, but it seemed implied that First John 2, 2, the world could be a reference not to individuals, but to simply like world structures or organizations. Um, and um, I don't think that interpretation helps us, helps the limited atonement case. But also, um, he didn't, God, Christ didn't die for the sins of the structures and organizations. You know, right? Sins are con committed by people. And so he died for the sins of, of the world. And the parallel is he died for our sins and we're people, we're not a structure. And he died for the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 2 is clearly not re referring to like a structure. It's referring to people. Uh, it doesn't have to be people of all time. It could be a reference just to the people of the time. That's fine. Um, but that would include someone who's not elect, which would ruin limited atonement. Um, there's one other little phrase I wanted to just get out there before I share my final thoughts. And that is, um, and I, I had a clip for it, but I, I didn't. I didn't load it up, unfortunately, in time. So there is a um, uh, a slogan I've heard several times, and that is the idea that if you're saying Jesus's uh, atonement is for everybody, yet it's only applied when people believe, you're saying something about Jesus's saving people requiring a secondary act of atonement, a second act of atonement, and this is, again, a powerful, like, rhetorical point. Wait, Jesus had a second act of atonement. No, 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 it is finished, man. He did it on the cross. It's all done. But we're talking about application, not the accomplishment of what purchases us and, and redeems us, right? We're talking about the application of it. And here, even the Calvinists would probably agree. The application happens, in their view, when, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you. And, I mean, I would agree with that, but we have nuanced views on regeneration versus faith 
but um, but it would happen when the spirit regenerates you. Well, that's application. You wouldn't consider regeneration a secondary act of atonement, would you? Well, neither neither would I. So don't say that application is an act of atonement because that, that's not even consistent with your own theology. There you go. That's my opinion. Um, so we're not going to do uh, Q&A tonight because of the length of this video. Um, I'm sorry, guys. You feel free to, to hash out your disagreements in the comment section. Um, but let me share some final thoughts before closing. Um, uh, one is this. Um, in, uh, in, in James White's videos, he's done two videos ref refuting me, which fine. I'm not offended by that at all. I, I watch them. I'm interested in seeing them. It doesn't bother me. I don't care if he does more. Um, but in both those videos, he didn't deal with the actual text of scripture I brought up. Didn't deal with the exegesis of those passages. He used like kind of Trump, Trump concepts and Trump texts to overrule and didn't actually handle those things. So now I've dealt with his Trump concepts, at least in his second video, and I think those texts still stand on their own feet. Um, and hopefully we're not talking past each other. I've tried to meet, you know, with the Calvinist talking points rather than the non-Calvinist talking points. I try to meet you on your talking points, my Calvinist friends and brothers. And um, I don't think those Trump texts or Trump concepts work. Um, you need to be open to the text refuting limited atonement. And if you think that makes your theology your theological grid work shift, then you should let it shift. I hope this really helps people. Um, we really need brotherhood on this issue. We need to be treating each other like we love each other and not breaking fellowship because of the topic of Calvinism. In, in my opinion, this is not a device, a, a dividing issue for us as Christians. And I hope I'm covering it in a way that encourages others to mimic a gracious and loving response to one another, even if you firmly disagree. Uh, and, and may God give us wisdom, even if I'm wrong on some of this. I, may he show it, may he reveal it, and then I'll make a video telling you how wrong I was. <laughs> but I am convinced that this stuff is accurate, and I think it's pretty important. Um, so let me know if this you found this to be helpful. I'm going to continue covering some issues on the atonement in the, in the coming future, but it won't be at all related to Calvinism. It is actually going to be related to um, uh, the, the essential elements of the atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, church history, and modern rebellion against the doctrine of the atonement. I, I'm putting it that way. And people are like, that's loaded language, Mike. And I, I'm using it on purpose because I do think it's accurately portraying uh, what I see going on in, uh, in and amongst some people. So I'm going to cover all this stuff coming up pretty soon. Um, also, in fact, I did a video on the atonement recently or a, a podcast uh, on Alisa uh, uh, Childers' uh, podcast. And you can go check her website out, alisachilders.com. And I did a thing on the atonement. There's a second episode coming out on her podcast soon and i thought it was something that would be fruitful um, for people if you're interested so thank you so much hey um if you love this ministry you're you know you're under no obligation but if you do want to support what i'm doing here you can there's a link in the video description for that or you can just go to biblethinker.org and there's you have the opportunity to support that way but again no obligation god is providing and i think we'll continue to provide as i continue to try to help people learn to think biblically about everything and you have a real christian worldview and to understand the truth and clarity of uh, real Christianity. So Lord bless you guys. Have a fantastic day. And James White, I love you, my brother. And thank you so much uh, for going skydiving with me.